0: stories on 1707 radio You're listening to bedtime stories on 1707 radio with your reader Anna Mercer Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve Chapter 18 Beavis A few days later London sighted prey again a scattering of small Slavic speaking tractionvilles which had been trying to hide among the crags of some old limestone hills To and fro the city went, snapping them up, while half of London crowded onto the forward observation platforms to watch and cheer. The dismal plains of the western hunting ground were behind them now, and the discontent of yesterday was forgotten. Who cared if people were dying of heat stroke down in nether boroughs? Good old London, good old Croom, this was the best run of catches for years. The city chased down and ate the faster towns, and then turned back for the slower ones. It was nearly a week before the last of them was caught, a big, once-proud place that was limping along with its tracks ripped off after an attack by predator suburbs. On the night it was finally eaten, there were catch parties in all the London parks and the celebrations grew still more frantic when a cluster of lights was sighted far away to the north. A rumour started to circulate that the lights belonged to a huge but crippled city that it was what Valentine had been sent to find and radio signals from the 13th floor elevator would lead London north to its greatest meal ever. Fireworks banged and racketed until two in the morning and Chudley Pomeroy, the acting head historian, reduced Herbert Mellifant to apprentice third class after he let off a firecracker in the museum's main hall. But at dawn the happiness and the rumours died away. The lights in the north belonged to a huge city all right, "'but it was not crippled. "'It was heading south at top speed "'and it had a hungry look. "'The Guild of Navigators soon identified it "'as Panzerstadt Beiruth, "'a conurbation formed by the coupling together "'of four huge traction starts. "'but nobody else cared very much what it was called. "'They just wanted to get away from it. "'London fired up its engines "'and raced on into the east "'until the conurbation sank below the horizon. "'But next morning, there it was again.' Upper works glinting in the sunrise, even closer than before. Catherine Valentine had not joined in with the parties and the merrymaking, nor did she join in the panic that now gripped her city. Since her return from the deep gut, she had kept to her room, washing, and washing herself to get rid of the awful slurry pit stink of section 60. She hardly ate anything, and she made the servants fling all the clothes she had been wearing that day into the recycling bins. She stopped going to school. How could she face her friends with all of their silly talk of clothes and boys, knowing what she knew? Outside, sunlight dappled the lawns and the flowers were blooming and the trees were all unfurling fresh green leaves. But how could she enjoy the beauty of Highland and ever again? All she could think of were the thousands of Londoners who were toiling and dying in misery so that a few lucky, wealthy people like herself could live in comfort. She wrote a letter to the goggle screen people about it, and another to the police, but she tore them both up. What was the point of sending them, when everyone knew that Magnus Croom controlled the police and the goggle screens? Even the High Priest of Cleo had been appointed by Croom. She would have to wait for her father's return before anything could be done about the deep Guts, providing that London hadn't got itself eaten by the time he came home. As for her search for the truth about the scarred girl, it had grown to a halt, Apprentice Pod had known nothing, or pretended as much, and she could think of nowhere else to turn. Then, at breakfast time on the third day of London's flight from Panzerstadt Beirut, a letter came for her. She had no idea who would have written to her, and she turned the envelope over in her hands a couple of times, staring at the Tier S. Six postmark and feeling oddly afraid. When she finally tore it open, a sliver of paper dropped into her algae flakes. Ordinary London notepaper? Recycled so many times that it was as soft and hairy as felt, with a watermark that said, waste not, want not. Dear Miss Valentine, please help me, there is something I must tell you. I will be in Pete's Eats at Belsize Park, tier 5, today at 11am. Sing to yours truly, a friend. A few weeks earlier, Catherine would have been excited, but she was in no mood for mysteries anymore. It was probably somebody's idea of a joke she thought. She was in no mood for jokes either. How could she be, with London fleeing for its life and the lower tiers full of suffering and misery? She flung the note into the recycling bin and pushed her breakfast away, uneaten, then went off to wash again. But she was curious, in spite of herself. When nine o'clock came, she said, I will not go. At nine thirty, she told Dog, it would be pointless, there won't be anybody there. At ten, she muttered, Pete's Eats? What sort of a name is that? They've probably made it up. Half an hour later, she was waiting at the central shaft terminus for a down elevator. She got off at Low Holborn and walked to the tier's edge through streets of shabby metal flats. She had put on her oldest clothes and walked fast with her head down and dog close against her. She didn't feel proud anymore when people stared. She imagined them saying, that's Catherine Valentine, a stuck-up little miss from tier one. They don't know they're born, those Londoners. Belsize Park was almost deserted, the air thick with grainy smog from London's engines. The lawns and flowerbeds had all been given over to agriculture years and years before, and the only people she could see were some labourers from parks and gardens who were moving along the rows of cabbages, spraying them with something to kill greenfly. Nearby stood a tatty conical building with a sign on its roof that read Pete's Eats and in smaller letters underneath CAFE. There were metal tables under awnings on the pavement outside the door and more tables inside. People sat talking and smoking in the thin flicker of a half-power Argon Globe. A boy sitting alone at a table near the door stood up and waved. Dog wagged his tail. It took Catherine a moment to recognise Apprentice Pod. "'I'm Beavis,' he said, smiling nervously as Catherine sat down opposite him. "'Beavis Pod?' "'I remember. "'I'm glad you came, miss. "'I've been wanting to talk to you ever since you come down to Section 60, "'but I didn't want the Guild to know I'd been in touch with you. "'They don't like us talking to outsiders. "'But I've got the day off because they're preparing for a big meeting, "'so I came up here. "'You don't see many engineers eating in here?' "'I'm not surprised.' said Catherine to herself, looking at the menu. There was a big colour picture of something called a Happy Meal, a wedge of impossibly pink meat sandwiched between two rounds of algae bread. She ordered mint tea. It came in a glass tumbler and tasted of chemicals. Are all tier five restaurants like this? Oh no, said Beavis Pod. This one's much nicer than the rest. He could not stop staring at her hair. He had spent his whole life in the engineer Warrens of the gut, and he had never seen anyone before with hair like hers, so long and shining and full of life. The engineers said hair was unnecessary, a vestige of the ground dwelling past. But when he saw Catherine's, it made him wonder. You said you needed my help, Catherine prompted. Yes, said Beavis. He glanced over his shoulder as if to check that nobody was watching them. It's about what you asked. I couldn't tell you down at the turd tanks, not with Nimmo watching. I was in enough trouble already for trying to help that poor man. His dark eyes were full of tears again, and Catherine thought it strange that an engineer could cry so easily. Beavis, it's not your fault, she said. Now, what about the girl? Did you see her? Beavis nodded, thinking back to the night London ate Salt Hook. I saw her run past with that apprentice historian chasing after her. He shouted for help, so I ran after him. I saw the girl turn when she got to the waste chutes. There was something wrong with her face. Catherine nodded. Go on. I heard her shouting at him. I couldn't catch it all over the engines and the noise of the dismantling yards, but she'd said something about your father, miss. And then she pointed at herself and said something, 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 Hester Shaw... And then she jumped and dragged poor Tom with her. No, miss, he was left there looking a bit stupid. Then the smoke came down and I couldn't see nothing and the next thing I knew there were policemen everywhere so i made myself scarce. I wasn't supposed to leave my post, you see, so I couldn't tell anyone what I'd seen. But you're telling me, said Catherine. Yes, miss. The apprentice blushed. Hester Shaw... Catherine turned the name over in her mind, but it meant nothing to her. Nor did she understand his description of events, which didn't seem to tally with fathers. Beavis must have made a mistake, she decided. He glanced around nervously again, then lowered his voice to a whisper. Did you mean what you said, miss, about your dad? Could he really do something to help the prisoners? He will when I tell him what's happening, vowed Catherine. "'I'm sure he doesn't know. "'But there's no need to call me Miss. "'I'm Catherine. "'Kate?' "'Right,' said Beavis solemnly. "'Kate.' "'He smiled again, but he still looked troubled. "'I'm loyal to the Guild,' he explained. "'I never wanted to be anything but an engineer, "'but I never expected to get assigned "'to the experimental prison. "'Keeping people in cages "'and making them work in the gut "'and wade about in those turd tanks.' That's not engineering, that's just wicked. I do what I can to help them, but I can't do much. And the supervisors just want to work them to death and then send them out to K Division in plastic bags, so even when they're dead they won't get no rest. What is this K Division? asked Catherine, remembering how Nimmo had hushed the other apprentice when she mentioned it. Is it part of the prison? Oh no, it's up top, in the engineerium. It's some sort of experimental department run by Dr Twix. What does she use dead bodies for? Asked Catherine nervously, not at all sure that she wanted to know. Beavis Pod went a little paler. It's just a rumour, miss, but some people in the guild say she's building stalkers. Resurrected men. Great Cleo. Catherine thought of what she had been taught about the stalkers. She knew that her father had dug up some rusty skeletons for the engineers to study, but he had told her they were only interested in the electrical brains. Could they really be trying to make new ones? "'Why?' she asked. "'I mean, they were soldiers, weren't they? "'Sort of human tanks built for some old war?' "'Perfect workers, miss,' said Beavis, wide-eyed. "'They don't need feeding or clothing or housing.' And when there's no work to be done, you can just switch them off and stack them in a warehouse so they're much easier to store. The Guild says that in the future, everybody who dies on the lower tiers will be resurrected and we won't need living people at all except as supervisors. But that's horrible, protested Catherine. London would be a city of the dead. Beavis Pod shrugged. Down in the deep guts, it feels like that already. I'm just telling you what I've heard. Croom wants stalkers built, and that's what Dr Twix does with the bodies from our section. I'm sure if people knew about this awful plan, Catherine started to say, then an idea occurred to her. Does it have a code name? Do they call it Medusa? Blimey, how do you know about Medusa? Beavis's face had turned paler than ever. Nobody's supposed to know about that. Why? "'asked Catherine. "'What is it? "'If it's not to do with these new stalkers?' "'It's a big guild secret,' whispered Beavers. "'Apprentices aren't supposed to even know the name, "'but you hear the supervisors talking about it. "'Whenever something goes wrong or the city's in trouble, "'they talk about how everything will be all right "'once we awaken Medusa. "'Like this week, with this conurbation chasing us, "'everybody's running around in a panic, "'thinking it's the end of London, "'but the top guildsmen just tell each other "'Medusa will sort things out.' That's why they're having this big meeting at the Engineerium tonight. Magnus Croom is making an announcement about it. Catherine shivered, thinking about the Engineerium and the mysterious things that went on behind its black windows. That was where she would find the clue to her father's troubles. Medusa. It all had something to do with Medusa. She leaned closer to the boy and whispered, "Bevis, listen. Are you going to this meeting?" Can you tell me what Cream says? Oh, no, miss. I, I mean, Kate. No, it's strictly guildsmen only, no apprentices. Couldn't you pose as a guildsman or something? Catherine urged him. I have a feeling that there's something bad going on, and I think this Medusa thing is at the bottom of it. I'm sorry, miss, said Beavis, shaking his head. I wouldn't dare. I don't want to get killed and carted off to top tier and turned into a stalker. Then help me go, said Catherine eagerly. She reached across the table to take his hand, and he flinched at her touch and pulled back, staring at his fingers in amazement, as if it had never occurred to him that anybody would want to touch them. Catherine persisted, gently taking both his trembling hands in hers, and looking deep into his eyes. I have to find out what Croome is really up to, she explained. For father's sake, please Bevis, I have to get inside the engineerium. Chapter 19 the Sea of Kazakh A few hours later, as the evening mists came curling from the rust-water marshes, Tenbridge wheels rolled down to the edge of the sea. It paused there a while, gazing out towards a cluster of islands that rose dark and rugged from the silver water. Birds were streaming in off the sea in long skeins, and as the suburb cut its engines, the beat of their wings came echoing over the mudflats. Small waves beat steadily against the shore, and a wind from the east blew hissing through the thin grey marum grass. There was no other sound, no other movement, no light or smoke trail of a wandering town anywhere on the marshes or the sea. Natsworthy! shouted Chrysler Peavy, standing with a telescope to his eye at the window of his observation bridge, high in the town hall. Where is the lad? Pass the word for Natsworthy! When a couple of his pirates ushered Tom and Hester in, he turned with a broad grin and held out the telescope, saying, ''Take a look, Tommy boy. I told you I'd get you here, didn't I? I told you I'd get get you through these marshes safe. Now have a look at where we're going.'' Tom took the telescope and put it to his eye, blinking at the trembling, blurred circle of view until it came clear. There were dozens of little islands speckling the sea ahead, and a larger one which loomed in the east, like the back of an enormous prehistoric monster breaking the water. He lowered the telescope and shuddered. But there's nothing there, he said. It had taken more than a week for Tunbridge Wheels to pick its slow way through the quagmire, and although Chrysler Peavy had taken quite a shine to Tom, he had still not explained what he hoped to find on the far side. His men had not been told either, but they were happy enough snapping up the tiny townships which had taken shelter in the mazes of the rust water, semi-static places with moss-covered wheels and delicate, beautiful carvings on their upper wooden upper works. They were so small that they were barely worth eating, but Tunbridge Wheels ate them anyway and murdered or enslaved their people and fed the lovely carvings to its furnaces. It was a horrible, confusing time for Tom, He had been brought up to believe that municipal Darwinism was a noble, beautiful system, but he could see nothing noble or beautiful about Tunbridge wheels. He was still an honoured guest in the town hall, and so was Hester, although Peavy clearly didn't understand his attachment to the scarred, sullen, silent girl. Why don't you ask my Cortina out? he wheedled one night, sitting next to Tom in the old council chamber that was now his dining hall. Well, why not one of them girls we took off the last catch? Lovely look as they was, and not a word of English, so they can't give you any lip. Hester isn't my girlfriend, Tom started to say, but he didn't want to have to go out with the mare's daughter, and he knew Peavy would never understand the truth, that he was in love with the image of Catherine Valentine, whose face had hung in his mind like a lantern through all the miles of his adventures. So he said... "'Hester and I have been through a lot together, Mr Peavy. "'I promised I'd help her catch up with London.' "'But that was before,' the mayor reasoned. "'You're a Tenbridge wheelsian now. "'You're going to stay here with me, like the son I never had. "'And I'm just thinking that maybe the lads would accept you a bit more easily "'if you had a better-looking girl, you know, more ladylike.' "'Tom looked across the clutter of tables "'and saw the other pirates glaring at him, fingering their knives.' He knew that they would never accept him. They hated him for being a soft city dweller and for being Peavy's favourite and he couldn't really blame them. Later, in the little room he shared with Hester, he said, "'We have to get off this town. "'The pirates don't like us "'and they're starting to get tired of Peavy "'going on at them about manners and stuff. "'I don't even like to think about what will happen to us "'if they mutiny.' "'Let's wait and see,' muttered the girl, "'curled up in a far corner.' Pv's tough, and he'll be able to keep his lads in line as long as he finds them this big catch he's been promising. But Quirk alone knows what it is. We'll find out tomorrow, said Tom, drifting into an uneasy sleep. This time tomorrow, these horrible bogs will be behind us. This time tomorrow, and the horrible bogs were behind them. As Peavy's navigator spread out his maps in the observation bridge, a strange hissing sound echoed up the stairwells of the town hall. Tom glanced up at the faces of Peavy's henchmen as they clustered around the chart table, but apart from Hester, no one seemed to have heard it. She looked nervously at him and shrugged. The navigator was a thin, bespectacled man named Mr Ames. He had been the suburb's schoolteacher until Peavy took over. Now he was settling happily into his new life as a pirate. It was a lot more fun, and the hours were better, and PV's ruffians were better behaved than most of his old pupils. Smoothing his maps with his long thin hands, he said. It used to be the hunting ground for hundreds of little aquatic towns, but they all ate each other, and now anti-tractionist squatters have started coming down out of the mountains and setting up home on islands like this one. Tom craned closer. The Great Inland Sea of Kazakh was speckled with dozens of islands, but the one Ames was pointing to was the biggest, a tattered diamond shape some 20 miles long. He couldn't imagine what was so interesting about it, and most of the other pirates looked baffled too, but Peavy was chuckling and rubbing his hands together in glee. The Black Island, he said. Not much to look at, is it? But it's going to make us rich, boys, rich, after tonight... Old Tenbridge Wheels will be able to set up as a proper city. How demanded Mungo, the pirates who trusted Chrysler PV least and most resented Tom. There's nothing there, PV. Just a few old trees and some worthless mossies. What are mossies? Tom whispered to Hester. He means people who live in static settlements. She hissed back. You know, like in that old saying: a rolling town gathers no moss. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, announced PV, that there is something on the Black Island. A few days ago, just before you came aboard, Tom, we shot down an airship that was footling about over the marshes. Its crew told me something very interesting before we killed them. It seems there's been a big battle up in Airhaven. fires, Engine damage, gas spills. The old place knocked about so bad they couldn't stay up in the sky but had to come down for repairs. And where do you think they've landed? The Black Island, suggested Tom, guessing as much from Peavy's greedy grin. That's my boy, Tommy. There's an air caravan ride there where sky convoys refuel on their way up from the League's land south of the mountains. "'That's where air Haven's put down. "'They think they're safe, with sea all around them "'and their mossy friends to help them, "'but they ain't safe from Tunbridge wheels.' "'A ripple of excitement ran through the assembled pirates. "'Tom turned to Hester, "'but she was staring out across the sea towards the distant island. "'Half of him was appalled by the thought "'that the lovely flying town was lying crippled there, "'waiting to be eaten.' The other half was busy wondering how on earth Peavy planned to reach it. To your stations, mearties! Me the pirate mayor yelled. Fire up the engines. Prime the guns. By dawn tomorrow, we'll all be rich. The pirates scrambled to obey his orders, and Tom ran to the window. It was almost dark outside now, with a last ominous glow of sunset bruising the sky above the marshes. But the streets of Tunbridge, Tunbridge Wheels were full of light, and all around the edge of the suburb, huge orange shapes were unfolding, glowing like fungus in a speeded-up film. Now the hissing from the lower deck made sense. While Peavy talked, his town had been busily pumping air into flotation chambers and these inflatable rubber skirts. Let's go swimming, shouted the pirate mayor, sitting back in his swivel chair and signalling the engine rooms. The huge motors rambled into life, a plume of exhaust gases drifted aft and Tunbridge wheels surged forward across the beach and into the sea. At first all went well, nothing stirred on the darkening waters as Tunbridge wheels went chugging eastward, and up ahead the black island grew steadily larger. Tom opened a small side window on the bridge and stood there feeling the salt night air spill over him, feeling strangely excited. He could see pirates gathering in the old market square at the suburbs' forward end, readying grappling hooks and boarding ladders, because Airhaven would be far too large to fit into the jaws. They would have to take it by force and tear it apart at their leisure. He didn't like the idea, especially when he remembered that his aviator friends might still be on Airhaven. But it was a town-eat town world after all, and there was something exciting about the cutthroat recklessness of Peavy's plan. And then suddenly something fell out of the sky and exploded in the market square and there was a black gash in the deck and the men he'd been watching weren't there anymore. Others came running with buckets and fire extinguishers. Airship! 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 Someone was shouting. And then there were more rushing things and buildings were exploding all over the suburb with people flung, tumbling high up into the air like mad acrobats. For Sooty Pete's sake! Shouted Peavy, running to the shattered observation window and staring down into the smoke-filled streets. His monkey jumped up and down on his shoulders, jabbering. "These mossies are better organized than we gave them credit for," he said. "Searchlights, quick!" Two wavering fingers of light rose above the town, feeling their way across the smoke-dappled sky. Where they met, Tom saw a fat rising shape shine briefly red. The suburbs' guns swung upward and fired a ripping broadside, and pulses of flame stalked the drifting clouds. "'Mist!' hissed Peavy, squinting through his telescope. "'Curse it! I should have known Air Haven would send up spotter ships, and if I'm not mistaken, that was uh, that, that witch's fangs old rust bucket!' "'The Jenny Hanover!' gasped Tom. "'No need to sound so pleased about it,' snarled Peavy. "'She's a menace!' "'Ain't you heard of the windflower?' Tom hadn't told the pirate mayor of his adventures aboard Airhaven. He tried to hide his happiness at the thought that Miss Fang was still alive and said, "'I've uh, heard of her. She's an air trader?' "'Oh, yeah.' Peavy spat on the deck. You think a trader carries that sort of firepower? She's one of the Anti Traction League's top agents. She'll stop at nothing to hurt us poor traction towns. It was her who planted the bomb that sank Marseille, and her what strangled the poor Sultana of Palau Pinang. She's got the blood of a thousand murdered townsfolk on her hands. Still, we'll show her, won't we, Tommy boy? I'll have her guts for garters. "'I'll hang a carcass out for the buzzards. "'Mango, pogo, mags, an extra cut of the spoils "'to whoever shoots down that red airship.' "'No one did shoot down that red airship. "'It was long out of range, buzzing back towards the Black Island "'to warn Airhaven of the approaching danger. "'But Tom could not have been more filled with grief and anger "'if he had seen it falling in flames. "'So that was why Miss Fang had rescued him and been so kind.' All she had wanted was information for the league, and her friend Captain Cora had been in on it, spinning that tale about her just to win Tom's sympathy. Thank quirk, he had not been able to tell her anything. Tunbridge Wheels was battered and burning, but the Jenny Hanover's rockets had been too small to do any serious damage, and now that the element of surprise was lost, Miss Fang did not risk another attack. The suburb chugged on into the east, pushing a thick bore of flame lit water ahead of it. Tom could see lights on the black island now, lanterns flickering across the shore. Closer, between the island and the suburb, shone another cluster of lights. Boats! shouted Mungo, peering through the sights of his gun. Peavy went and stood at the window, robes flapping on the rising breeze. Fishing fleet, he grunted, sounding satisfied. First meal of the night, we'll eat Emma by way of an aperitif, thus starters to you lot. The fishing boats started scattering as Tunbridge wheels bore down, running goose-winged for the shelter of the shore, but one, bigger and slower to the rest, sagged away to windward. We'll have him, growled Peavy, and Mags relayed his order into the intercom. The suburb changed course slightly, engines grumbling. The steep crags of the Black Island filled the sky ahead, blotting out the eastern stars. What if there are guns on the heights? thought Tom. But if there were any, they stayed silent. He could see the white wake of the boat ahead, and beyond it, a faint, pale line of breakers on the shore. And then there were other, closer breakers, dead ahead, and Hester was shouting, Peavy, it's a trap! They all saw it then, but it was much too late. The fishing boat with its shallow keel ran clear through the reef, but the great lumbering bulk of Tunbridge Wheel.